RadioInfluence.com. Welcome to another edition of the Real Animals Podcast, always presented by my good friends at Contender Boats. Really, really excited today to have uh, not only a friend of mine, but uh, in my opinion, one of the best captains on the west coast of Florida joining us today with uh, over 25 years guiding experience here on the west coast of Florida, specifically uh, in Charlotte Harbor. He is with Beyond Borders Outfitters. That's the name of his company, and he is Captain Rhett Morris. Rhett, how are you today, pal? Doing great. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be on the show with you. I really appreciate you doing this. I think that our uh, our listeners uh, to the podcast, and, and we've got a lot of them, a lot of very loyal listeners are really going to enjoy this. Uh, I want to dig in first before we get into our fishery and the status thereof. Um, I want to I dig into a little bit of of Captain Rhett Morris and, and how this all, how did this all come about, Rhett? I mean, I, I did some homework. I always try to do a little homework on my guests and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought I saw you were born in Zimbabwe. That's right, man. Right beside Victoria Falls. <laughs> really? That's cool. Yeah. My, uh, the long history over there, my, uh, lineage comes from British settlers way back in the day. And we've been there since the early 1800s and, when uh, the government changed hands in 1980, my dad luckily knew it was time to move to a different area, find a little better life, and, and uh, we got very lucky and were able to immigrate into the United States here. Nice. Well, that works out good. And so you settled there uh, on Charlotte Harbor, and uh, the rest is kind of history, I guess, huh? You got it, man. Right smack dab in the middle of fishing paradise. <laughs> right. So the the one thing that... that comes to mind. You and I have fished side by side for years uh, in Boca Grande Pass, uh, specifically, obviously, during tarpon season um, down there for the years that I was guiding in Charlotte Harbor. And th- the one thing that I always go to when I, when somebody mentions you or when I think about you know some of the best guides on the west coast of Florida, and your name always jumps into my head when I do that, I think about the time that we filmed. The very first episode of, of Real Animals TV, actually, after I had left News Channel 8, and taking the show on my own, I found my production team, Colorblind Media, which is absolutely phenomenal. And the very first episode, I was fortunate enough to come down there to Burnt Store uh, on on Charlotte Harbor and fish with you. And And I think what stood out to me the most was... I mean, obviously, you know, to be a great charter captain, you have to you have to have extensive knowledge of the fishery and the estuary and things like that. But it seemed to me that you know, with twenty five years of guiding experience, what stood out to me was like you were still like a little kid. It just seemed to me <laughs> like you were having so much fun, Rat, that there was no place else you'd rather be and nothing you'd be rather doing than to be fishing. That's a big amen, bro. And <laughs> you know. You- speak to uh, any successful fishing guide or hunting guide or, or just anybody who owns their own business. If they don't have a passion for it, especially when it comes to something in the outdoors, it's a unique arena, Mike, because as you know, we, we can't uh, control everything. You know, you can control the equipment you, you uh, put on the boat and, and the boat you buy and engine and there's certain things you can control, but there's a lot of variables like the weather and the tides and temperatures. And just, there's so many things that are in play 
each day that you cannot control, which makes it very, very difficult and at times very, very frustrating. (laughs) And if you don't have just a a heartfelt love for that, for the game, good and bad, because, you know, you got to roll with the punches when it's not going your way, then, you know, I've seen a lot of guides come and go in in my 25-plus years doing this. And the ones that that fall away are are the ones that don't love it to the core, man, because there's there's at least – as many really tough days as there is good days, if not more. I think I think got to hold on. I think that's hitting the nail right on the head. It, it it cracks me up because I get all these emails and all these calls from parents and grandparents, and you know, uh, little Johnny is absolutely ate up with fishing, Captain Mike, and he wants to graduate from high school and then he wants to become a charter captain. So could you talk to yeah. him, you know, and, and point him in the right direction? And I'm always like. Absolutely. I would love to talk to little Johnny, but I'm going to just shoot at you straight. I'm going to tell little Johnny to go to college and get a job. (laughs) That's what I'm going to tell little Johnny (laughs) because it it seems like, you know, everybody thinks it's this, uh, you know, you're just in paradise every day. Uh, And they forget about days like today where you wake up and it's 38 degrees outside and, you know, you still have some, there's some customers that still want to go. They want to fish on yeah. those days. So you end up, you know, even though you know it's going to be a tough day, you still end up having to go. I remember, Rhett, when I first I first started playing around with this whole guiding thing, and I really got brought into it because of the, the Redfish Tournament Trail. I, for me, it, it was never a dream. Um, I just love to fish, and I love chasing redfish with artificials, so I started fishing the tournaments. And then it became clear that you could get more sponsors if you're a captain. So I went and got my captain's license, and the next thing you know, you're running a few trips, and then you got radio going and TV going, and pretty soon you're just full-time fishing. So for me, it wasn't you know a childhood dream, per se, to be on the water. Um, but I, but I, think, I think it's the one thing that people need. Dave Marquette he really touched my brain early on because I got a I got a, a back in the day when the old uh, Sprint had the beep beep phones. Remember the little Nextel beep beep phones they used to have? Um, oh yeah, yeah. Well, so Marquette beeps me one afternoon, and I was running around running my aluminum business and working, and and uh, it was Dave like four thirty in the afternoon. I was like, "Hey, Dave, what's up?" And he beat me back. He's like, "Mac, you got any openings over there in that aluminum business of yours?" And I just, I, I busted up laughing. <laughs> like, do you have a tough day on the water today, Dave? I mean, Dave's been a guest here on the podcast. He's been guiding for, you know, 50 years. And, you know, yeah. and, and Dave was like, well, tell you the truth, Mike, I'm just really sick and tired of busting my butt to catch bait. And, you know, finally two hours in catching enough bait to run my trip. And then the fish don't want to eat. And he was trying to run, I think he was trying to run me through all the negatives of being a fishing guide. Before I made the leap, I think he was like, you know, Mike, if I were you, I'd stay in the aluminum business and just continue to fish for fun and not turn it into your job. And uh, I'll I'll never forget that that call, because even as, you know, being 20 plus years into it now, I I look back on those, especially when you have one of those days where baits a grind and then the fish don't want to chew and you just... You know, you're beating your head off the side of the gunnels trying to figure out what to do next. And that usually jumps into my head where Dave, I'm like, you know, Dave warned me that this was not going to be all the paradise that you think it is before you get into it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of that with it, man. There's no joke. And, and uh, if you have a deep, you know, heartfelt love for it, you can dig your way and grind your way through it. But yeah. it, you definitely got to gotta love it to your core if you're going to do it full time and be successful. 
No doubt, no doubt. So let's go to um, fish in the estuary now for, you know, since you were a little kid, four or five years old, you've been on Charlotte Harbor this whole time. Where does where does Captain Rhett Morris see our fishery compared to where it was 25, 30 years ago, Rhett? Well, you know, for 40 years, is uh, I've been out there for almost 40 years in one way or another. And in that period of time, I don't care where you are in the world, you're going to see some changes, good or bad or indifferent. You're definitely going to see some changes. And, um, you know, for most of my life in the 80s and all the way pretty much through the 90s, the fishery stayed fairly constant uh, to the degree that there was just a lot of fish uh, a lot of a lot of fish of all sizes, plenty of big fish as well, and very low boat pressure. And um, you know, I started guiding full time in '95. I was guiding through high school, just you know, unofficially for three years before that for tips and stuff. I didn't charge charge money for it, but spent time you know learning the craft, and then got my boat and got rolling in '95. And by the end of the '90s, I saw one thing dramatically change, and that was just the boat pressure. And, um, after about 10 years of seeing steadily increasing boat pressure, you know, getting into 2005, I started to see a very clear and present difference in the fishery and we weren't catching fish as easy. And the one thing that had changed the most dramatically and any um, longtime guide in our area will agree with this is the quality of the size of fish we were catching was definitely heading down you know you could go out and catch you could still catch 100 fish in a day but you weren't going to catch a lot of big snook anymore you know all your snook would be definitely under 30 inches Um, sometimes no fish in a day of over 60 70 snook would be hardly any of them over 26 inches right and i started i started to think dave i was like you know this it's got to be the people pressure that's that's the only variable i've seen change in this equation but I didn't know because I had no experience with um, different limits and stuff, really. Well, then we had 2010 roll along. The fishery was shut down for snook because anybody who's been around here uh, before and, and since obviously remembers that uh, 2010 cold kill. It was actually the coldest kill or the coldest uh, weather ever to hit Florida in its recorded weather history of over a, a century and a half. So when they closed that fishery, Dave, for the first time, or excuse me, when they closed it, Mike, for the very first time in my life, I saw an experiment happen, if you will, where the boat pressure was still out there. You know, obviously people were still fishing, but it was against the law to take a snook out of the water and kill it. And that went on for about uh, two and a half years. And in that time period, the Florida Wildlife Commission's data will also back this statement up. Snook of all sizes increased in number across the board. And then they opened the season in the fall of 2013. And we had the fall season open and followed by the next spring season starting in April, or I guess starts in uh, March. And within 12 months, and having gone through two closed, se- two open seasons of snook fishing, I watched all of the incredible quality that had been put back into the fishery during the two and a half in- two and a half year closure vanish in that twelve month period. We went from catching virtually no snook of 
at all over 30 inches unless you decided to really put in some serious effort and fish specifically for large snook. You just caught none throughout the day. And we were catching a dozen or more each day fishing full days that were over 30 inches prior to the reopening of the season. And the snook um, data recorded by FWC, which actually they go out and net this bay 365 days a year and measure the fish they're catching. Their data shows that all snook sizes rose. And as soon as together, as soon as they opened the season in 2013, there was a dramatic fall of only snook 28 inches and larger. And I think that that was the first time in my life that I've ever seen hard evidence that it really is people pressure. We're, we're, we have a lot more to do with what's going on in our fisheries than many of us have thought in the past. Right. So, so, I mean, what, you know, what, what's the answer? I mean, you know, the, there's so many, I get so much, I get so much animosity when I bring this topic up on the radio shows. Um, it, at least it seems like to me, there's so many naysayers that say that, you know, here we're doing a podcast, we have two full-time guides and, you know, they're going to talk about, you know, not keeping snook, you know, don't, don't kill a snook, don't kill a snook, don't kill a snook. You guys just want to, you guys just say that because you don't want people to take them so we can catch them for money and, you know, our customers can catch them and we can take pictures and put them on our Facebook. Well, I mean, what's the answer? How do we, how do we avert that? Because that's not my, it's not my sentiment at all. My sentiment isn't that, that I don't want it because I'm a, you know, I like fish. I mean, snook is delicious. Sure. So, you know, I haven't had one in a long time, but they're delicious. And, and so, and I want people to be able to catch fish. I'm a hunter. I'm an outdoorsman. You know, my wife calls up from time to time and says, Hey, if you're snapper fishing today and you get a few extra, you know, bring them home and let's have, you know, let's have fresh snapper for dinner. So I eat fish. It's not that I'm worried about, you know, my customers catching them, but how do we, how do we get people to, to think and look at this to where it makes sense? Well, that, that is the question. And in that question, you've got to, to answer that question to the best of your ability, you've got to sort of pick apart all the different demographics in our area that, that are, you know, make up the people who care about the fishing. And, um, I, I just got some, some, uh, information from the Florida Wildlife Commission this week and they they're telling me that there's 322,000 people that hold fishing licenses within the eight counties that encompass this current closure. And for anybody who doesn't know, this is the first time in Florida's recorded history that redfish, snook, and trout have ever been closed together. That has never happened before. So that's a pretty big red flag in itself. For the Florida Wildlife Commission to actually make a a closure like that against, you know, they've, they've been pretty, uh, I would say, in my opinion, not as on the ball as I wish they would have been watching this steadily increasing number of, of fishermen and, and residents to the state in the past 30 years, which I feel, and that's just my personal opinion, remember, that, you know, it, that that's been part of what's let our fishery fall to the point that it was. So that in 2018, when we experienced that red tide event, which was the largest loss of marine life in one event in Florida's recorded history. Now, that's that's over 150 years of 
of, of records that show different events. Of course, we all know red tide is naturally occurring. The one in 2018 was greatly exacerbated by human pollution and the things that we're doing that are related to coastal development and farming, agriculture, and everything else, phosphate mining and the rest of it. So when you get into that question, you got to sort of look at as many angles as you can. And we all know that money is what drives many of the decisions within our counties, states, and our nation. And our coastal economies depend a lot more upon the health of our fisheries than most people realize. And here's why. If you take, let's just pick a number and say that the average fishing outing for most people, some are much higher, some may be lower. Let's just pick a number, Mike, of 25 bucks per person per day. Now that's, you know, some sodas, beers, ice, bait, whatever. I think on average, it's probably a little higher than that, but let's just pick 25 bucks. When you take and extrapolate that information out, 322,000 people in the eight counties, 25 bucks per person per day when they fish, that's what they're putting into the coastal economy. That's eight, almost eight and a half million dollars per day. Now, I'm talking to guys in these fishing groups down here and giving seminars. And at the end of each seminar, we usually discuss in the, for the past five years, it's been, what, when are we going to do something to make the fishery better? I'm tired of not catching fish in a nutshell. And you know, we discussed this whole thing. Well, in, in this previous, this year, 2020, we're now in, we've gone through the second year basically of a closure and I'm not hearing that anymore, Mike. I'm hearing the fishing's getting great. We're catching fish. Instead of going once a month, now we go twice a week. This is awesome. Three times a week. I go almost every day. It's so much better. It's worth it now. The money I'm spending, I'm hearing so much positivity coming out of the average angler experience on the water. And if you take and, and put guys out there, let's just say that these 322,000 registered fishermen if they went two times a week, that's $64.5 million a month that's injected into our coastal economy. That's a lot of money. That's real money. So the answer is, in my opinion, looking at what benefits the, the majority. And the majority, I feel, is... Is, is all the people in our coastal economy, whether you're selling, you have a gas station or a donut shop or um, a tackle store or whatever, if you're along the coastal economies within this eight counties that are, that's in this closure right now, you need to be paying attention to what's happening because the money being generated by this closure, I believe just from fishing is on a steady major increase from what I'm hearing and all the people I'm talking to in this demographic of, of people who are hanging out at these fishing clubs. Most people are near retirement or in the retirement age. And mo the way it breaks down, it's between 25 and 35% of the population in Southwest Florida is 65 years or older. And I just feel like, Moving forward, we absolutely have to open the seasons, Mike. There's, there's no doubt. We, we do need to open the seasons. Uh, my charter business depends on a healthy fishery. People want to keep fish, and so there's got to be a balance. 
But here's where we have to get more detailed. When we move forward and start opening the seasons back up, we have to realize that we can't do it the way we've done it. You know, times are changing. Everybody knows that. There's, you know, when, when we moved here in 1980, there was barely 7 million people in Florida. Now there's almost 22 million people in Florida. Um, the stats I heard the other day, uh, it's, it's a guesstimation, but over 2,000 people a, a day are moving to Florida right now because of COVID and, and state tax problems in other states and whatnot. So with the massive increase of population to our area, most of which is concentrated along the coastlines, and much of it in the past five years is coming to the West Coast now because it's so built up on the East Coast, we got to look harder at this and figure out better uh, slot limits for the fish because there is a, a lot of evidence to support that wherever the minimum of each slot size is set, that's where the bulk of that population ceases to exist. So we need to adjust those accordingly to allow for a greater escapement, which is going to do two major things. We're going to have more fish in the fishery to fish for, which is going to increase people's quality of, of their daily experience when they go, because the more fish there are, the easier they are to catch. And by raising the minimum slot, which I believe is a, is a good idea, you're going to also increase the quality, which is, again, going to pump up the average angler's experience, thus generating more and more revenue for the entire coastal economy, not just the, the people who are into fishing. Well, and, and, and I, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to mess up your flow here, but I think mm -hmm. that your numbers are extremely low and, and here's, yeah. and here's why, because you're taking 322,000 people that are licensed anglers in these eight counties. Do you know how right. many people I take a year? And I'm guessing you as well, but I'll just speak on behalf of my charter business. How many people I take right. a year don't have a license that fish with me that still influx that same money into the economy that fly in? Yes. I've, got, I've got customers in Pittsburgh. I've got customers in Jacksonville. I've got customers in Ohio. I've got customers in Wisconsin. They fly in every year. They stay in the hotels for three, four, five days with their family, fish with me two or three days. They're still buying ice. They're still buying drinks. They're still buying dinner. They're still, they're, they're pumping money in. So we're, that money's not even in your equation. Exactly. <laughs> so the, 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 that, and, and that's my, my point is I think you're spot on and I love the way that you do your math. Um, and that's why I was so excited to get you on the podcast here. But in, in, as you're talking, I'm thinking that doesn't even include most of my customers. Most of my customers don't. They don't. They don't even have a license. They fish under my license. So how are we? We can't not count those people because they're buying stuff too. I mean, they bring a giant bag exactly. of beers and subs and all kinds of stuff on the boat every morning. So they're pumping all that exactly. money in too. So I think you're spot on. I think they're now. Now dive a little further into into the into what you'd like to see happen because now it's uh, it's late fall. Um, early winter here uh, just to kind of date the show and we're, and we're looking at a possible um, reopen in May of 2021. So it's late fall 2020. We're looking at a reopen possible reopen uh, upon the FWC's analysis of the situation in May of 2021. So what, what's your thought process moving forward and what could we possibly do to maybe help the situation out? I know you were touching on it a little bit. Yeah, the, the the way we need to look at uh, the 
opening of the closure in May. And that's going to be sort of specific to trout and redfish. Snook won't be up for um, discussion until I believe it's uh, later. Yeah, later in the year when they their normal fall. However, when you get into the the trout and redfish, especially redfish, there's a big part of the equation which we haven't touched on yet, and that is ever present water quality decline. And water quality decline for all of the people out there that don't really have it on the forefront of their thought process is very, very real. We have major issues with with it here in Charlotte Harbor. There's a new algae called filamentous algae, which is absolutely taking over the entire upper and eastern side of Charlotte Harbor in ways that is literally hard to describe. The first time I ever saw it in my life was 2018, right after the, the massive red tide kill. And so with that said, we have a massive a water quality issue, which is a big detriment to major that has a lot to do with the redfish. So here we go with redfish. Currently, if they go back to what we had, we have an 18 to 27 inch slot. That is way, way too much of a window, too large of a window in size, because we all know that an 18 inch redfish for for any of you that haven't caught one much or eaten one, there's hardly any meat on an 18 inch redfish. They're not even that much fun to catch because they're just so small. Now, if we bump the size up to say 26 inches with an upper slot limit of 29, decrease the slot itself and you're going to kill less fish. And you're certainly going to pump the fishery full of quality because without being able to kill one until it's 26, you're going to have a lot nicer size average size of redfish in the bay like we used to and you're going to have a lot more meat on the fish you are allowed to kill so you don't end up taking home you know a pair of 18 inches with you and your buddy and get barely enough meat to feed two guys so that's a plot a positive and then when you're dealing with the water quality issues that we have mike you know each year for many years we've had an ever-present red tide looming around the passes down here, Boca, Captiva, and Redfish Pass. And you have all the redfish, for people out there that don't know the uh, life cycle of a redfish, they're spawned near the passes, they wash inside the bays, and, and, you know, usually reach a level of maturity by four or five years old, maybe sooner. And then they go back out into the Gulf of Mexico, and they go back and forth up and down the coast, but never really come back and live in the bays again. Usually the only time they approach the coastline with any consistency is during the fall when they get ready to spawn. Well, with the red tide we've had near our passes for the past decade, there's been thousands of mature redfish, and these are 20 to 40-pound reds on average that are being killed by the red tide while they're trying to spawn, which is knocking down the, the next year's class, year class, obviously, because they can't breed. Then you're getting people in the bay taking all these little tiny sub-adults at starting at 18 inches and it's a recipe for disaster. So we need to really look hard at that redfish limit and uh, set that minimum size much higher to give the fish a better chance to reach that maturity level, which puts more fish back into the Gulf as an adult and increases the year class spawn rate to keep up with the massive amount of fishing pressure and increase of that, as well as the declining water quality which you know you can't we can't stop that we, there's no um, at this point in time there's no plans for anything no there's no silver bullet to sort of take out red tide or do much about it so with that out there in question 
and we know we don't really have a way to put a finger on the water quality decline, we certainly need to rethink the way that we manage the fishery to produce, manage it for more of an overabundance to deal with the declining water quality that we can't control by doing something that we can control, which is deal with, you know, give the fish a better chance. Same thing with trout. You know, they, the slot size on a trout, I think they're proposing 15 to 19 and that's fine. But you know, the, the limits need to be two or three. I think they talked about lowering it to three and, and trout need a closed season again. Most of my entire life trout were closed in the winter. Right. And for a month or two, and that protects them, always did protect them from overfishing because anybody who knows trout know that when it gets real chilly outside and the water temperature drops dramatically, they all go to the nearest deep water. Well, when they're concentrated like that, they're extremely vulnerable to overharvesting, which is exactly what happened since 2012 when they eliminated the one or two months during the, the uh, winter where trout were closed. Well, that- it was disastrous. That time of year also, when it comes to speckled trout, is the time of year that we get all our mullet fishermen from the Carolinas and everywhere up north. Every They all invade Tampa Bay pretty heavily. I'm not sure how it is at your boat ramp, but in the wintertime, and I don't have anything against yes. the commercial. I'm not down. I'm not dogging the commercial mullet fishing guy. That's not my point here. Me neither. I'm all about the commercial mullet fishing guy. I got a lot of buddies who do it. I'm down. I get it. But that time of year, when the mullet and the trout get in these creek mouths, it gets really hard not to have some loss of our speckled trout anyway. So if you can decline the amount of pressure that we're putting on them that time of year and just make it, you know, the mullet guy's trying to make a living. And again, it's just like fishermen. There's some bad fishermen out there that are going to do bad things to our fishery. And there's some bad mullet fishermen who, you know, strike mullet in areas where they know they're going to bang the trout up. So I get it. So again, I'm not picking on it. I'm just saying to me, I see value in that because if we could eliminate double pressure, because you get all the pressure from all those fish being stockpiled in the creek mouths and the fishermen knowing they're there and they go in there and whack them and get their limits every single day, back to back, day after day after day after day. And then the poor mullet guy comes in there and then he inadvertently, you know, ends up hammering them too because they end up in the nets as they're trying to catch their mullet. That's a double disaster. Exactly. Yeah, it's we we got to change it up, man. We've got to we've got to think of doing things a different way. And when it comes to snook, Mike, a lot of people out there may not understand the the life cycle of a snook, but it goes something like this: they they do not reach. Uh, you know, snook are are pretty much all born male, mm-hmm. and they turn into female fish when they hit somewhere between twenty six and twenty eight inches, is what the biologists tell me, and. So here we have our, our minimum size for snook set at 28 inches, which means that we are vastly wiping out the breeding females from the fishery right before they get a chance to help increase the spawn for the next year. And, and then we got water quality and, and all the loss from the declining water quality on top of that. So again, with with snook, we have to adopt a new management plan that's much more proactive, and that would look something like making the minimum size of a snook 36 inches or 38 inches. And by doing that, you know, you get a knee-jerk reaction. The first time I ever heard that, Fish and Frank from old Fish and Frank's here on 41, yep. which unfortunately is gone now due to a freak accident, but Fish and Frank said that to me years ago, and I thought to myself, "What the heck? That's crazy. How would you? Why would you want to kill such a big snook? That's terrible." And he said, no, think about it. 
If you make the minimum size 36 or maybe 38 inch minimum, you are going to pump the fishery full of breeding age female snook that are going to do so much more for the fishery each year during the spawn than they've ever been able to do before because we've been wiping out all the breeding age females because so few fish, and this data is proven by the FWC and supported by their biologists, that there was a massive decline in 28-inch or above size snook once we opened the fishing on uh, the season on snook back in 2013. So, you know, we, we've got to, we've got to put our heads back around the problem here and, and look at it from a new angle. It, it, just because it's what we've always done doesn't mean it's right anymore. And that, that, that's a worldwide um, comparison. I mean, it's, you can look at that over and over again with many different issues. And when there's so many more millions of people, which affect the water quality, the fishing pressures up, we've got to change things around here. And by doing that, we're going to increase the level of anglers success by quite a bit. It's already been proven to me by the guys I'm talking to in these local fishing clubs. They are all super happy with the level of uh, success they're having these days. And that is going to be worth hundreds of millions of dollars annually to the coastal economy around here. And, and yet people are still going to be able to keep fish. If, if, can you imagine how much more fun, Mike, it would be to come back to the dock and pound your chest and throw a 38 incher on the dock than it is these little, you know, what, six, seven, eight pound, 28 incher. I mean, the life cycle of a snook is coming to an end as far as a, a strong breeding female after 38 inches. And, you know, even if that, even that's, if that's incorrect, we've still had years and years of that fish pumping massive amounts of eggs into the spawn each year before it's harvested. Yeah. Well, and for me, being a guide and, and enjoying so many 50 to 75 fish days, especially, you know, April, May, June, when the snook are just pouring out of the backcountry, headed for the beaches, and you just have that day where you just, every bait that hits the water, you're catching another 25, 26-inch male. How great would it be if all of those fish were 30 to 35 inches? How much fun would it be to catch 60 or 50 35-inch snook in one day? And I know it would take us some years to get there, but I think you're spot on. I, I When you and I first talked about this idea, I thought, boy, it absolutely is mind-blowing because I really think it, and like you said, it makes the fishery better. It makes the fishery stronger. And, and you know what, and I think this is the part everybody misses. And I know you're an outdoorsman. I know you're a hunter like I am. And it's the word that seems to scare people for some reason, but it's management. You have to manage the fishery, just like you do a deer herd. If you're on a deer lease somewhere, or even if you hunt public land somewhere, if if, if you're just shooting every little spike buck you see, you're never going to see an eight-pointer. It's never going to happen because every time that deer's horns gets to be four or five inches long, somebody shoots it. You're never going to see an eight-pointer. And if you do, he's like a unicorn. It's a once every 10 year deal. If you let all those little bucks go and you let them all grow and then you, then you see the eight, the 10, the 12 pointer, you see that four year old deer that is towards the end of his life cycle anyway. Now you're, now you're hunting for trophies and you're still getting meat out of it. It's a win-win. It has to be managed correctly. I think you're spot on with the whole thing. 
Yeah, I'm I'm excited, man. I I think that this this closure along these eight counties, we we have a very unique opportunity to start off in a new direction that we're already on. And if we can get the FWC to adopt a new mindset that is based around proactive management that takes a look at the the whole ball of wax. You know, I feel like they've been very narrow-minded in the past 30 years, not really taking into account the massive increase in overall fishing pressure. We're so much more effective than we used to be with all the new equipment and, and the information, the wealth of information about how to get better faster is uh, is so heavy out there today that if we don't come up with a new proactive management plan for the future, when they lift this closure, whenever that is, even if they wait another two or three years, what positivity was allowed to flourish in our fisheries will disappear very quickly. Because as I said, the positive trend I saw in the snook population, as well as the size of the snook, after a two and a half year closure back in the um, 2010 to 2013, uh, that was gone in 12 months, completely eliminated from our fishery. And it'll just happen again. I mean, it's, we've got to, we got to figure this out and look at it from a much wider view than we have in the past. Or we're, you know, if you keep repeating history or if you, if you don't change anything, you definitely will keep repeating history. I mean, that's an age old fact. Well, and it's interesting I know from a personal standpoint how much fun it's been the last six, eight months, ten months, where when we when we when I splash the boat in the morning, I'm not really sure whether it's gonna be thirty snook, forty snook, or thirty or forty redfish. I'm not sure. I might be able to find that school today. There was a big stretch in there where my customers got on the boat and said, Hey, uh, any chance for some redfish today? And I'd be like, Probably not. If we catch them, it'll right. be, seriously, I mean, we just, you know, there was one flat in Tampa Bay that was holding redfish on a regular basis, and quite frankly, I won't fish there because the fishermen act like morons, and I just, I'm like, I'm not going to that spot. We might find them somewhere else, but I haven't been finding them because we just didn't have them, and now they're starting to show up everywhere again. I mean, even on a day where it's a predominantly snook day, you know, where we catch 25, 30 snook, we're mixing in three or four redfish that, you know, we weren't even fishing for them. We were just fishing an oyster bar, just pulled up the oyster bar and see who's home. Oh, look, 26-inch redfish. Oh, look, 27-inch redfish. Oh, 25-inch redfish. Dock lines that historically held redfish that didn't have any on it for, you know, almost a two-year stretch there now are holding redfish again. So I, I think, and again, that's fun to me. And, and I think, again, wanting, wanting the fishing public wanting my customers to be able to take some fish home and understanding that it's a resource. Um, and a lot of people love to take fish home. I get it. I'm down. Um, so understanding that I think they need to do something to open it. I love this approach. I really do. Cause I think it serves both sides of it well. Um, and it might be a while before the snook fishery was loaded with 38 inch fish that people could, you know, take home. Um, but imagine how much fun it'd be getting there. How many fish we'd catch? That's what I'm exactly, my man. And uh, before we continue, I'm getting a a pretty. It's sort of being in. It's an increasing 
distortion in your audio coming to me. Are you still hearing me clearly? Yeah, you're coming through real clear. You sound good. It's probably okay, just yeah, it's poor English on my part, maybe. But anyway, that's I, cool. I, I, well, I, um, I wanted to dig into this with you a little bit because when you first ran all this by me, it, it spun my head for a couple of days. I, I even talked to some people here about it, and I think it's a fascinating way of looking at our fishery. Exactly. I feel like we really do have a unique opportunity, Mike. And if we can just you know sit down with the right people in the commission and run some math by them and let them consider the fact that we have always been struggling along with not enough tax revenue generated for the Florida Wildlife Commission. I hear it from the officers here locally and the biologists that they are struggling with their budget and this, that, and the other. And when you, when you have the ability to just, let's just take these eight counties that are within this closure and work with it. Why not try something new that we haven't tried before? There's going to be more meat on the table more regularly with more fish in the water than there ever was in the past 10 years if we can work to something like this because it's a simple fact if there's less fish in the water you're going to catch less fish if there's more fish you will catch more it is not rocket science here <laughs> and what do we have to lose at the end the, the real last statement is really what do we honestly have to lose and the answer is nothing well and i thought you know, and, and again, in, in our conversation prior to this, where you were like, this is the time. This is the moment that we should take a shot at this because we're coming out of this very unprecedented, uh, bizarre time in our state's history, in our estuary's history. This should be an opportunity for us to try something different, to think outside the box and see if we can't, you know, drop a grenade in this thing and blow it up better than it's it's possibly ever been. I mean, the fishery, in my brain, the way you lay it out, the fishery five years from now could be better than I've ever seen it. I haven't lived here as long as you, so maybe not better than you've ever seen it, but I believe it would be better than I've ever seen it. That's exactly right. We have we have an opportunity to at least try for that. Who knows what will ultimately happen with, um, you know, what may come, may or may not come along the line with the, the more red tide and stuff. We don't know. That's a big question mark. But, you know, there's there's another thing I forgot to touch on, which is a lot of these young guides around here that, that were always telling me that they could never go catch and release. They'd lose all their clientele. And the only reason I was able to go primarily catch and release is because I'd been doing it so long and I had such a, a larger clientele base to, to work from and I said, okay, you know, whatever you guys think, it's, it's fine. I don't want you losing money. Do whatever you think you need to do to make your money. And every single one of them, Mike, has come back to me within the last six months and said, man, you were, you were so right about this. He's like, my days are so much better. I'm catching so many more fish per charter. My clients are all ecstatic, and nobody gives a rip about not keeping fish. Do they want to keep some fish? Sure, if they can. But because the seasons are closed, my schedule is just as full as it was before. I'm not having to go through a, a half an hour to an hour of cutting up fish at the end of my charter, which makes me happy. And I have as much business, if not more, than I did before because the rods are bent so much more often throughout each trip. Sure, sure. Well, and you know, uh, a gentleman that... Uh a legendary, in my opinion, a legendary Charlotte Harbor guide for many, many years, Captain Phil Duggar. Phil Duggar said yeah. something to me years ago that I thought was just 
absolutely spot on and so interesting because I'm a big catch and release guy too. And again, like I said, I don't mind taking fish home, but 99% of the time when I'm on the water, even if I go by myself, I don't, I, I probably won't keep a fish. Phil Duggar said he didn't really understand all the people having trouble with catch and release. How do all these people play golf every Saturday and Sunday and at the end of a round of golf, they don't even eat the golf ball. How does that happen? Yeah. Y- yet the people still go play golf. Exactly. You go play golf, you don't eat the ball. Why can't you go fishing and not kill the fish? And again, if it's not a shot at those people who kill fish, again, I, I'm okay with it. I get it. I just don't understand. There's so many people that are on the far extreme side of it. To me, I get a lot of phone calls on the radio side where, you know, oh, it's just not even worth it to go. Everything's closed. I don't want to go. I can't fill the cooler. I don't want to go. That doesn't make any sense to me. To me, I think you're missing the beauty of the Florida estuary. You're missing the the beauty of the fish we catch each and every day. Every single time I pull a snook out of the water, Rhett, I think to myself, that's unbelievable. And it doesn't, to me, it doesn't matter if he's 22 inches or 35 inches. Of course, I'd rather him be 35 inches because I know he jumped three times more and he's a, you know, scream more drag. I get all that. But every single time, it doesn't matter. Even a little trout, you catch 10 inch trout on a jig somewhere, it's still a beautiful species. It's still super cool. So, I, I mean, I just think you're spot on. And I think, uh, how do we, is there a way that, that the listeners, is there a way that we can help from this side of it? Uh, sorry, say that part again. I had the way the listeners, listeners can do what? Is there a way that the listeners or, or even myself, what we can do something on our end of it to help yeah, you there, possibly get this yeah, through? There absolutely is. I mean, you can literally go on myfwc.com and send an email to the staff or and or Eric Sutton, who is the executive director. And, and I will say, that in the past 25 years of working with the Florida Wildlife Commission, Eric Sutton is the first hands-on executive director that I've ever dealt with. He is, has been so such a pleasure to work with on this um, closure because he seems to be much more open-minded than in the past, uh, you know, dealing with the the commission and that's got to have. And so I think that, you know, the opportunity because of the new executive director in the FWC, we have a great opportunity to get their ear and just have people voice their opinions because in the end it's up to us and public opinion is what helps shape their decisions. So calling in to the, or, you know, just sending a quick email to the FWC saying, Hey, I'm, I, I want to see the seasons open up someday, but, you know, we do need to try new management or I prefer catch and release. I'd like to see them stay closed for indefinite future, whatever your opinion is and help them because that's the biggest problem they have, Mike, is they don't get hardly any feedback from the public. And here we have 322,000 stakeholders in this coastal fishery that's currently under it, this historic closure. And, they're going to hear from 0.001% of these people during the next meeting in May on whether or not they should open the fishery. And, you know, I want the fishery to open, you know, just as much as anybody else. I eat fish. We all eat fish. That's why we got into it back in the day. But if we don't do it the right way, we're going to be right back where we were. And the very next red tide that hits is going to take us back into another closure because we haven't managed for the buffer zone we need to survive the next red tide without being forced into another closure. 
Well, and that touches on a whole nother subject of, of CCA Florida. You know, there's 275,000 members of CCA nationally. And we just said there's 322,000 licensed anglers in eight counties in Florida. Yeah. How pathetic is it? And, and again, and I've said this a million times on the radio, you know, again, I understand people are busy. You don't, maybe you don't have time to make that email. Let CCA be the voice for you. Become a member of CCA. And yes, I'm taking this opportunity because Rhett teed it up to plug my good friends at CCA Florida. I'm a life member. I think it's really, really important, the work that they do for now, water quality, for, you know, grass beds in our estuaries, oyster bar restorations in our estuaries, offshore reef building, what they're doing now with Duke Energy for stocking redfish, uh, snook releases, all the stuff that they're doing now is absolutely instrumental in us moving forward as a fishery. So it's so important that we, you know, and it, you just pounded it home, 322,000 anglers in one eight-county section of Florida, and there's like 275,000 members of CCA. That's terrible. Yeah. It's horrible. And then you wonder why we can't get anything done. I've said it a million yeah. times on the radio show. There's 6 million members of the NRA. 6 million. That's why they don't get your guns. They want your guns. You know why they don't come get them? Because they knew they lose six million votes off of Jump Street, six million, and yeah. not everybody that owns a gun's a member of the NRA. Keep that in mind too. But they lose six million votes immediately. If there was six million members of CCA Florida, you'd get stuff like this would walk through. It'd be done overnight. The management, the, exactly. the science, the amount of energy they put forth to getting things right in our fishery, both inshore and offshore, would immediately change because the politicians in Washington would know how we felt. Really need to take a look, people, at joining CCA Florida. Rep Morris, great job, my friend. As always, you're so well-spoken, so well-educated on this stuff. I absolutely love you, brother. I really do. I think you do a great job for our fishery. You're somebody that I really look up to, respect. I know what a great charter captain you are. Uh, now getting to know you even better as a friend, you're just you're, you're great for our business, and I appreciate you, pal. Well, Big Mike, you know I greatly appreciate your kind words, and uh, and the absolute reverse saint right back at you. And it's been a, a pleasure and an honor to work with you and and around you here in Boca and back and forth. And and thank God we have guys like you who are willing to take the time it has taken you to get the following you have and create a voice for people who don't know to start to get to know, because that's what we've got to do. The, the increase, steady increase of the knowledge needed to make a more educated decision is always going to help us in the future. No doubt about it. Beyond Borders Outfitters, and I highly recommend if you are looking to take a, uh, a staycation if you're here in Florida or a vacation if you're somewhere around the country, get on down there to the Burnt Store area, call Captain Rhett and either fish with him or one of his great guides down there. If you can get on Rhett's boat, I highly recommend it. He, he put on a clinic for me several, several times. I had myself and my customers sitting there watch this guy popping fish left and right. So one of the best in the business. Rhett, again, thank you for your time today, my friend. We appreciate you, and uh, we'll talk soon, brother, all right? Sounds great, my friend. Have a good day. Wow, I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Captain Rhett Morris, Beyond Borders Outfitters, what a phenomenal guy. His passion for our fishery is is really something else. You know, I talk about it all the time. There's 
There's just something about these guys that uh, that separates them, that makes them really, really special. These, these truly gifted charter captains, and, and you can hear it in his voice. And I promise you, if you book a trip with him, you'll see it in the results. The man is a beast, absolute beast. Real Animals Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, ritampabay.com, and Spotify. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. We try to drop new episodes each and every Tuesday on you. Hope you guys enjoy it. Remember, the Real Animals Podcasts are presented by Contender Boats. If there's somebody out there you'd like to hear me do a podcast with, uh, drop me a message. You can uh, reach us at uh, Facebook slash Real Animals, or you can reach us on Instagram at Real Animals TV and on Twitter at Real Animals Fish. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. This is an In the Trenches with Ian Beckles quick fix on Radio Influence. I walked in a locker room one time with a football that my wife wanted to get signed for a charity event. I was with Keyshawn with Jets. So I was like, hey, Key, what's up? He's like, what's up, dude? Looked at me like he'd never seen me before, which is fine. He's sitting in my locker that I had for seven <laughs> years, right? So I go, hey, Key, uh, you mind signing this for my for my wife's uh, charity? And he, he, he was talking to somebody, and he stuck his hand out and grabbed the football and signed it. And gave it back to me and gave me back the pen, but didn't look back at me. Okay. And I felt like saying, I will slap your face. <laughs> then I walk over to Brad Johnson. Hey, Brad, Ian Beckles. He goes, Yeah, I know how you are. How you doing, buddy? I go, Hey, my wife has a charity. What charity is it? Oh, this is, I hope it goes well. He signs it. He goes, Hey, man, if you ever need anything. And I was like, That's a nice dude. Here's why Keyshawn didn't like you. He likes everybody. He's always good to everybody. He just doesn't like black guys from Montreal, Canada that went to Indiana. <laughs> That's, that's, so aside from those things, <laughs> but you know what's funny? It's not like Keyshawn didn't like me. He didn't know yeah, me from just, Adam. Yeah, but uh, I hated him when he was with New York. Yeah, when I was in that locker room, Brian Cox ran that locker room, by the way. And one time I saw Brian Cox give him a two hand shiver in his chest when he had a towel on, just a towel. And I said, "Yo, Brian, what's that all about?" He looked at me, and goes, "Don't nobody like Keyshawn, dog." We got to do a podcast on how legitimately violent it gets in NFL locker rooms. Like, I don't think people understand. <laughs> no, like, don't. this is not like the NBA or like, no. if you have an issue in the NFL locker room, like, it's a real issue it's to get real, settled. Yeah. Yeah. And somebody wins, somebody loses, and we move on. Yeah. But it's, it's almost unnatural to do a lot of things that we did. Very true. Like, you know, you go out of football field and you just, you're really just fighting with somebody. Yeah. And then two minutes later in the locker room and you're eating. Right, chicken wing. You know what I mean. So it's not a natural thing, but the machismo that goes out in there. Like I see Lamar. I've seen Lamar Thomas, who's a buck seventy, punch Scott Dill right in his eye, hey. who's three ten, and Scott Dill didn't do nothing. Hey. It's a room full of alpha males, and the cream rises to the top. Like mm-hmm. a lot of guys bark, don't bite. In the trenches with Ian Beckles can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.